Thank you, guys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Glad to see everybody. And um, welcome back from spring break. For those of you who are out of town, um, I'm excited to preach on 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. So let me jump right in by first asking God to take care of us in this time studying his word. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful for your grace, and we are grateful for the finished work of Christ and the fact that we stand um, sure of your unconditional love because of what he did. And Father, even as I pray those things, I, I acknowledge I so often forget them, and, and it has so many negative effects. And so I, I pray that you'd help us in our, our time studying 2 Corinthians 3 today, that we would better understand and you would imprint these truths on our, on our hearts and in our souls, that we wouldn't quickly forget them. And I pray, God, that you would enable us by these truths to live in the freedom that you've called us all to. And so I can't do any of that, Lord. Only you can. And I pray that you would. And I pray that the lives that result from you doing that in us would bring you glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my family just got back from Costa Rica. We went on a, a surf vacation. Uh, it, was, it was a ton of fun. We, we took like four days of instruction surfing, and, and I actually got better. And, and that's a little bit surprising because the other times that I've surfed, it's been an exercise in futility. I, like I am, generally speaking, not a good surfer, but, but this time, for whatever reason, I, I sort of got over the hump a little bit. I, I started being able to catch waves and ride them laterally. Like I'm, I'm right on the cusps of being able to use the word stoked in a sentence. I mean, like I, I, I'm getting there. Like I'm, I'm still a beginner and still super long boards, but, but boy, it was fun. And it wasn't that we just surfed. We, we also, we did some hiking. We, we ate some sushi, which in retrospect, was a very, very bad idea, and you'll hear more about that later. Um, we also, the other thing that we ate other than sushi, really before we ate sushi, we ate a lot of fruit. We ate a lot of fruit. We ate mango and papaya and, and pineapple. Bananas in Costa Rica, kind of hot take here, not as good as the bananas that you can buy here in the good old U.S. of A. It was, it was kind of surprising. So a little pro tip for when you go to Costa Rica, buy pineapples. Pineapples are awesome stay away from the bananas. Um, funny that you know, we, we ate a lot of fruit. We talked about a lot of fruit. And then my son, Will, and I, my son's 25 years old and lives in Bozeman, Montana. We talked about fruit, not fruit that, you know, pineapples and, you know, bananas and things like that. We talked about fruit that comes from the church. Basically, the thing that my son, Will, is struggling with is when he goes to church, he doesn't see a lot of fruit coming out of the body of Christ. And, and it's discouraging to him. He, he wants to follow Jesus, but he feels like so many of the people who go to church are, are kind of judgmental or, or arrogant or a, a bunch of things that I think a lot of people think is true of the church, honestly. And, and so we, we talked a lot about it and what does fruit in the church look like? And, and actually, that's ironically what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the fruit of the new covenant. The new covenant. If, if you don't know what the new covenant is, it's because you weren't here last week. Last week, Daniel gave a, a really great sermon on 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. I listened to it literally three times. I thought it was, I thought it was fa fantastic. I still don't know what the word sardonic means, but other than that, 
it was, it was great. And, and if you followed his, and I'm just going to summarize it because it's the base for what we're going to be looking at today. In verse 3, it essentially says that transformed lives, and look, transformed lives, when we talk about lives that are transformed, we're talking about fruit, aren't we? Just so you're following where I'm going with this. Transformed lives come, come from changed hearts, not from adherence to the Old Testament law. That's what verse 3 is kind of establishing. And, and then from there, Paul really starts to develop a, a compare and contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and so Daniel covered this, so I'm going to go really quickly. Um, the Old Covenant is very external in its nature. So it, it's outside rules that we're trying to stay inside of, um, external in its nature. The New Covenant is very internal. The, the Old Covenant is written on tablets of stone, this is all from verses 1 through 11. The new covenant is written on our hearts. And, and y'all just spend some time this week and, and think about the fact that God has written a new covenant on our hearts. That's, that's really, really neat. Uh, the, the old covenant brings death. Verses 1 through 11, it says that it, it brings death. And the new covenant brings life. The old covenant has a fading glory, so it's, it's a diminished glory. And, and that's part of why Moses has a veiled face, and, and, and in the new covenant, not only does it have a fading glory, not only does it have a permanent glory, but our text today is going to say it has a progressive glory. So in the old covenant, the, the glory is diminishing, and in the new covenant, we're, we're on an upward trajectory, and that's it's actually really fun and hopeful. I, I'm going to take a liberty here and, and say the main application that Daniel made, and again, I, I listened to his sermon three times, is why would people saved through the new covenant revert to a life lived in the old covenant? Like why, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the shed blood of Jesus, and, and we are absolutely secure in who we are, why would we then revert back to all of this striving and, and trying to earn and, and like just never totally know if, if God really loves you. Like Paul, Paul's wrestling with that and he, he's trying to get the Corinthians to, to really embrace the implications of the new covenant. And it, I, when I listen to that sermon, I, there's this illustration that popped into my head. Like if, if I gave you a house, like so, so I'm, I'm giving you a house. I'm not giving you a down payment on a house. I'm literally giving you the whole stinking house. If I, if I give you a house, would you try to pay me rent? Because if you did try to pay me rent, it would be an indication that you have misunderstood what it means to be given a house, right? Like if, if, if you're trying to pay for something that I've already paid for and I've given it to you as a gift, you're, you're basically trying to earn or pay for something that I've already paid for. That would be insulting to me. Like, if I ever give you a house, don't try to pay me rent. And I think the point is, God has paid for your house. House being salvation here. He's done it. And so what trinkets can you throw at God to obligate greater affection than the perfect affection that he already has for you in the blood of Christ? You know, that, that's, that's the glory of the new covenant. There, there's nothing you can do to add to a gift that he has already 100% given. And, and have you really understood that 
understood the implications. So that's, that's a review of Daniel's sermon. Now we're ready to look at the fruit of the new covenant. So we, we talked a lot about it last week, and, and this week it's what's downstream of that, what, what sort of fruit does really embracing the new covenant produce? Verse 12, you're going to see the first fruit. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The first fruit of the new covenant is boldness. It's boldness. Now, let's back up a little bit. When we talk about hope in the Bible, first of all, it's a hope in the new covenant. I mean, that, contextually, that's, that's what Paul has been establishing. It's, it's a compare and contrast. The old covenant, there, there's no real hope in that. The new covenant, there's abundance of hope in that. It is a hope in the new covenant. And, and I just want to be clear, hope in the Bible is not wishing for something that you're unsure of. Like, I hope that the University of Texas wins its, its game in the Sweet 16. But I'm not sure. Like, we use that type of expression with the word hope all the time. And that's fine today. That's just not what the Bible was talking about. The, the Bible would say something like, I hope to read a French novella. Now, that's a lie, but it's five weeks in a row I've mentioned France. <laughs> and I'm on a roll. And I'm trying to, like, loose myself from just, like, the, the jocular illustrations that I'm kind of known for. So, five people, but I'm not going to read a French novella, ever, so just so you know. It's a longing for something that is certain. It's not a wishing for something that is uncertain. We have a hope in the new covenant, and, and therefore, we are very bold. I want, I want to talk about boldness, because Boldness has kind of fallen out of vogue in Christendom a little bit. In, in this kind of politically correct culture, we, we sometimes disavow or move away from the idea that we should be bold as Christians. We'll say things like, I don't want to impose my beliefs on anyone, right? You hear that all the time. I don't want to impose my beliefs on my friends. And my answer to that is, sure you do. Sure, sure you do. Come on. Hey, like, take that out of a religious context and think about the implications of you don't want to impose your beliefs on your friends. I, I get that impose might be a little bit strong, but don't you want to influence your friends? If there is something good that you want them to believe, it's because you love them, right? That aren't you trying to convince them of something that is good, something that is in their best interest all the time? Sure you do, if you believe those beliefs will benefit them. You've heard me talk about these kayak trips all the time. And I've, I'm not trying to recruit anyone for our kayak trips. Our kayak trips are full for this summer. So I'm not manipulating you here or anything like that. But I've told a lot of you over the last several years that you should go on a kayak trip. I've, I've tried to impose my belief that it was good for you to go on a kayak trip. I, I've thought perhaps when I've talked to you about that, that you need to get some training in disciple making. Like it would, it would, it would make your life more full. It would make your investment in the people that you're discipling more effective. I, th that's a good reason to go on one of these trips. And so I, I've, I've tried to convince people. I've tried to compel people to do that. Maybe I've thought that you need some Christian community, some intentional community, some, some, some depth 
in your relationships so that you can understand the fullness of Christian community. And so I've, I've tried to get you to go on a kayak trip. Maybe I've just thought you're kind of soft. You need some challenge. Like everyone needs a little challenge, like something that will make you actually have to depend on God in, in a real-life scenario. We, we live such comfortable lives. But for all of those reasons, I've tried to get people to go on these kayak trips. I, I'm, I'm trying to convince them. It's not for my interest, it's for their interest. Here's what verse 12 is talking about. Since we know that the gospel, and the gospel and the new covenant are kind of synonymous here, since we know that the gospel and the new covenant changes the people that we love, we actually proclaim it to the people we love. Like, the reality is, y'all, and hear this, if you've really believed the gospel, and you believe that it transforms people's lives, how could you not share it with the people you love? David Platt has this great quote, how much would you have to hate someone not to share the gospel with them? Y'all, of course we're trying to share the gospel with the people we love. Of course we're trying to convince them that this view is in their best interest because it is in their best interest. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Since we have such a hope in the new covenant, we are bold to proclaim it, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. So let's get a running start on this. Moses gave Israel the law, really the Ten Commandments, and, and they were written on stone. We know that from Daniel's sermon last week. And they were temporary, and that's, he'd veil himself because they, it was kind of coming to an end. And, and it was also, and this is verse 7 of this chapter, it was also a ministry of death. The Old Covenant is a ministry of death, which I think begs the question that we need to answer. Is the Old Covenant even good? Like, it, it's what we were given in the Old Testament good. Some noteworthy preachers, I would not call them theologians, have questioned that. I would say, and hear me before you brand me as a heretic, it kind of depends. Is the Old Covenant good? It, it depends. For showing the will of God and the standard that our very good God demands, it's absolutely good. It's absolutely good. For saving people, which it was never intended to do. It's not good. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. So have you heard of people who have said, I don't really need to believe in Jesus or make him the Lord of my life because I follow the Ten Commandments. You hear that a lot in today's secular, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty moral. I follow the Ten Commandments. I always am like, okay, name them. <laughs> like, get... Give me three, and I won't ask you another question. They can't do it. Okay, where are they found? <laughs> no idea. You know, like, and so you're like, <laughs> you're putting a lot of eggs in the Ten Commandments basket that you don't know what they are. And by the way, even the three you know, you have violated. And, and I have too. Like, I'm not down on those people. I, we are law breakers. That, that's what the Ten Commandments teach us. It's wonderful at showing us that we are lawbreakers. So, so the Ten Commandments were never intended to save us. 
They were intended to show us the very high standard that our good God demands. The problem wasn't the standard, y'all. That, that's not the point. The problem was never the standard. The problem was we couldn't adhere to the standard. That Fundamentally, that's where we find ourselves. I mentioned earlier in my introduction that we ate sushi. That we ate sushi in Dominical, Costa Rica, a small surfing village in Costa Rica. Again, in hindsight, not a great idea. After eating sushi, my, my sweet wife Mary ate nothing but soup in Costa Rica. I mean, like, I, I drove 20 miles to the nearest real grocery store to buy her soup, and I know her. I bought her Campbell's chicken noodle soup. You know why I bought Campbell's chicken noodle soup? Because it's made in the United States of America. <laughs> and Mary, after that Costa Rican sushi, had, had developed a disdain for all foods Costa Rican. And so she wanted Campbell's chicken noodle made in the United States of America soup. Now, I made her that soup. I'm, I'm pretty good at making Campbell's chicken noodle soup. <laughs> I, I added for her water, bottled water. <laughs> it matters. It matters. And I served it up to her, and I tell you, that, surf, that soup was good. It was really good. But if I had served her that soup with a fork, would that have gone well? Campbell's chicken noodle soup, good soup, made in the United States of America soup, served with a fork. Would it have made the soup bad? Soup's not bad. Soup's as good as it's ever been. I made good soup. Follow the illustration, because it's great. <laughs> the law is the soup. The law is the soup, and the soup is good, but our flesh is like a fork. And you try to get that good soup up to your mouth with a fork, and you're just going to make a mess. You, it's, it's not going to work at all. You, you can't get the soup in you. You see what I'm saying there? Like, it's, it's just not going to work. The soup isn't going to nourish you. The soup isn't going to sustain you. The soup isn't going to make you righteous. The soup is going to make you a mess if you're using a fork. A fork. Why would God give us a law when he knows that our flesh is a fork? Why would, why would God give us something like a soup that we couldn't appropriate because of our flesh. Why give it? Verses 14b through 16 give us the answer there. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I don't know if you caught this or not, but ultimately the righteous requirements of the law drives forks like us 
to realize we need a spoon. Now, I'm going to pause here. I want to make sure that the metaphor, the illustration has not confused you. I want to make sure that you're getting it. I want you to raise your hands if you think you understand what the spoon is. My wife isn't sure. <laughs> she, she, she gave one of the, like, <laughs> you know, like that kind of deal. The spoon is Jesus. Okay? Like you should have seen that coming. Jesus works well with the law, doesn't he? Where Jesus fulfills the law. He, he, he fulfills it perfectly. He, he dies a sinner's death, thank you. He dies a sinner's death not because he has made a mess of the law. He dies a sinner's death despite the fact that he lived an impeccable life. He fulfilled it completely. He dies a sinner's death for our sins. Y'all, he completed the law. He worked perfectly with the law. And then he dies a sinner's death so that we might be made right with the law. It's, it's the great, greatest. Jesus, according to verses 14 through 16, is the rest of the story. The righteous requirement of the law drives forks to recognize their need of a spoon, and the spoon is Jesus. Jesus is the rest of the picture. It's, it's not like he's a puzzle piece. He, he is the picture. Like, it doesn't work without him. We see our need of grace through the law. The law is important. The law is wonderful because it drives us as forks to know that we need grace through Christ. So here's the final application of this little section. Soup is great. Soup is great. Just make sure that you have a spoon and hopefully you understand what all that means. Let's go to verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is where it gets fun. When the Spirit convicts us of our sin and, and Jesus' sufficiency, we know unconditional love. That's not what the text said. The text said, there is freedom. But, but here's my point to you today, and I, I think I can defend it. Unconditional love is freedom. Unconditional love is freedom. Freedom from striving. Freedom from striving to earn God's love. Y'all ever fall into that? I fall into that all the time. If I do these things, God will love me more. If I do these things, God will be more pleased with me. If, if I do these things, I will obligate God's affections. I've forgotten that he bought me the house. Freedom is freedom from striving to earn or to pay. Freedom is freedom from insecurity. Always asking, have I done enough? Like, have I accomplished enough? Have I abstained from sin enough? Have I done enough good works? Have I measured up? Have I balanced the scale somehow? Ultimately, freedom is freedom simply to enjoy God. To rest in a finished work and to thoroughly enjoy God. Honestly, I want you to ask this question. How many of you are enjoying God right now? Like in your life, 
Like, how many of you would say, the one word that I would use to describe my relationship with Jesus, I am so enjoying him. Like, what a joy to walk with Jesus. If, if that does not sound like you, something's wrong. Something's wrong if you don't enjoy him. Look, I, I think, I don't think you'll hear this in, in too many pulpits in America today. I don't want you to lead or serve out of obligation. We have to recruit 400 plus small group leaders and a whole bunch more Sunday school leaders and youth leaders and all sorts of other people. And I'm here to tell you right now, I don't want you to do any of it if it comes from obligation. I, I just don't. I want you to lead or serve for and from freedom. Now, that's, by the way, exactly what Daniel was talking about last week when he was talking about giving Kelsey flowers. If you're giving Kelsey flowers, if he's giving Kelsey, I'm not giving Kelsey flowers, <laughs> but if he's giving Kelsey flowers because it's Valentine's Day and he hasn't done anything for her and he feels obligated, Kelsey's not that impressed. On the other hand, if he goes and buys the same exact flowers, but it's because he adores Kelsey, it's a lot different motivation. That's the motivation God wants for and from us, that we would lead and serve from a place of freedom. Are you there? Are you there? Are you, like me, struggling to lead or serve from a place of freedom and joy? If you are, I think verse 18 might be able to help. Let me read it for you. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think this might help. That's the good news. The bad news is, at the end of a sermon, when I've already bored you, I'm going to get technical, geeky, I'm going to go into Greek grammar for about five minutes, four or five minutes, okay? I'm, I'm letting you know this. If you'll hang with me, I think you'll get something out of this that will be significant, but if you, if you let your mind wander, not much I can do for that. Hang in there. What is verse 18 saying? Well, for, first of all, the, the primary verb is are being transformed. It goes on to say into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But, but the primary verb in this verse is are being transformed. And here's where I get geeky. You ready for it? Are being transformed is a present passive verb. Now, why do I tell you that? To annoy you. Not really. Why do I tell you that? Because it, it matters. It is a present passive verb. Present tense means it's an ongoing continuous action. You are being transformed. That kind of gives us permission to be a work in progress. We are being transformed. So this is an ongoing action, but it's a passive 
passive verb, passive mood, which means we're not the ones doing it. So the transformation that is in process in us isn't something that we are doing, it's something that somebody else is doing. And in the context, there's no other answer. It's God doing it. So God is ongoing action transforming us. We are being transformed, present, passive, verb. God is doing it. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, we all want transformation. Even if you're not a Christian, I think you probably are self-aware enough to go, I haven't arrived yet. Like, I I want to grow. I want to develop. I want to be transformed. There are things about me that I don't like. And and even if you don't believe that God can do it, and he can, you're wrong. You want transformation. Well, the good news here is we know we're unfinished work. God says that he is doing the work of transformation. How does it happen? How does it happen? Well, you got to go back in verse 18, and I'm, I'm just here to tell you that there are two participles, like verbal adjectives, that modify the main verb. So we are being transformed is the main verb, and then there's these two participles that modify the main verb that tell us how it's going to happen. The first one doesn't even look like a participle in English. It, it basically says, we all with unveiled face, with unveiled face, is the first participle. It really, if, if you were trying to do it and make it sound like a participle, it would, with unveiled face, would be having been uncovered in face. Having been uncovered in face. Now, that is a perfect passive participle. Hang in there. Perfect tense in Greek. It's a real grammatical language. It's a past-completed action with ongoing consequence. So the first one was a present participle. This one is a perfect participle, a past-completed action. It's already happened, but it has ongoing, ongoing consequence. And we're not doing it. So this idea with unveiled face, these, this unveiling of our faces, this isn't something that we do. We we can't unveil our own faces. We can't unveil our own hearts. This is something that God does. God gives us sight. He he unmasks us so that we might see with unveiled face, having been uncovered in face, perfect tense, it's already happened, it has ongoing consequence, and it's something that God did, not something that we did. Last one, hang with me. The next participle is beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord is a present middle participle. Present tense meaning another ongoing action. We talked about that in the first verb, the main verb. It's ongoing action because it's in the present tense. It's not passive. It's, It's middle. It's too much to explain. But this is something we do. That's what middle means. Middle or active, it's, it's, it's we're the ones doing it. And, and what are we doing? We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're seeing the glory of Jesus. That's what we're doing. It, it's a present, so it's an ongoing. We're, we're continuing to see the glory of Jesus. Let's try to put it all back together. Having been unveiled, a past 
completed action with ongoing consequence that was done by God because it's passive voice, having been unveiled, we, by beholding, again, ongoing action, we are continuing to look with intentionality, almost like it's a looking in a reflective mirror. We are, we are looking at the glory of the Lord, and, and by looking with an ongoing action into the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed, also ongoing, also by God, because it's passive voice again, into the same image as the Lord. That's a lot. I, I get that that is a lot, but if, if you've hung with me, this answers the question, how do we lead and serve from a place of freedom and joy. We ask that question. We're, we're not all very good at it. This is the answer. Stay in your lane. Know what you're responsible for. Know what God's doing. Stay in your lane. Verse 18 says, God does the unveiling. He opens your eyes. He enables you to see. God also does the transforming. It's not your job to transform yourself. You, you can't transform yourself. That is the work of the Lord. Our job, sandwiched right in the middle, is the beholding. That's our job. It's what we do. We look with intentionality. Hey, a long, lingering, ongoing gaze. Middle voice. We, we are doing it, and it is a reflexive thing as well. We, we are looking at the glory of the Lord without ceasing. That's how we learn to lead and serve from a place of freedom. We behold the gospel. We behold the goodness of God. We, we just enjoy and celebrate what we get to watch because God has unveiled our face to know Jesus. We, we stop striving. We, we stop trying harder. We, we start enjoying Jesus. And, and then we just do whatever we want because if we are really enjoying Jesus, we'll do what God wants. We, we want to, oh, I got to go now because this is what God wants me to do. And it's like, oh, like, no. We so enjoy God. We so enjoy the gospel. We're like, yeah, let's go. How many of you in growth group or community group in the middle of March feel like the next six or eight weeks is like six or eight months? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> and, and the whole point is, if, if this is just an obligation and you're like, I got, it's Wednesday night, and, oh, I got to get it. Spring is interminable. If on the other hand, you are spending time beholding Jesus, like that, that's your primary thing that you're doing as a Christian. I want to saturate myself in the gospel. I want to enjoy it. I want to marinate in it. I want to bask in it. Whatever the word is, you're doing it. And then it gets to be Wednesday night, and you're like, oh my gosh, this gospel that I've been meditating on all week, it is so exciting. I cannot wait to go and share with my small group all the great things that I've been thinking about, and I hope that they will do the same with me, and I can't wait to go. See the difference? Man, if you don't see the difference, I need to quit my job, or golly, there's a huge huge difference. Behold the risen Lord and the glory of the gospel and then go and do exactly what you want to do 
because in the beholding, you will want the things that God wants. That's the key to small group, to ministry, to life. By the way, it's the answer to my son's question. Maybe you've forgotten about it. I will not forget about it. When people go, I don't like the fruit of the church. It's because the church is living according to the old covenant. I've got to do the things that God has called me to do. Instead of enjoying the new covenant and the unconditional love and the freedom that we have in Christ so that going and and loving people is not a burden, it's not a duty, it is a joy. That is where Christianity is not only enjoyable for you, it's attractive to the people out there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not settle for external, lesser things. I pray, God, that we would be so intent on beholding the glory of Jesus crucified for our sins and and so enjoy the unconditional love that that has afforded us, though we still sin that it would transform our lives, that we would look more and more like Jesus as a result of our beholding. And God, I pray that you would continue the work of transformation. And God, we thank you that you have unveiled our hearts and our eyes, that we might see these truths. May we see them more continually. And God, I pray that our lives would be lived for your glory, that they would be marked by freedom, that they would be marked by love, that they would glorify you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.